Businesses all over the world right now are trying to reinvent how they connect with the world. Whether a business is delivering packages, treating patients, or running a global customer support center, their customers need them to invent new ways to stay connected. Twilio is the platform that Fortune 500 companies and startups alike trust to build seamless communication experiences with phone calls, text messages, video calls, and more. Really, the only limit becomes your developer's imaginations. It's time to build. Visit Twilio.com to learn more. Welcome to episode 215 of Greater Than Code. I'm Jessica Kerr, and I'm happy to be here with debuting panelist Mondo Escamilla. Hi, Jessica. Thanks. And I'm here with my friend, Rain Hendricks. Hey, Mondo. Uh, I've actually known Mondo for like over a decade. So it's really cool to be doing this with him and also with my friend Avdi, who I've also known for quite a while. Hi, Rain. And I am very thrilled to be here with Abeba Burhani. Abeba is currently a PhD candidate in cognitive science at University College Dublin. She studies the dynamics and reciprocal relationships between emerging technologies, personhood, and society. Specifically, she explores how ubiquitous technologies that are interwoven with our personal, social, political, and economical sphere are shaping what it means to be a person. And I just want to say on a personal level, it is rare that I get the privilege of introducing someone who has legit changed my life. Abeba's <laughs> article on a person is a person through other persons in Aeon completely baked my noodle and has changed how I think about identity and discovering oneself. And so I am very, very happy to uh, be here talking to you. Oh, my God. I have no words, Avdi. Thank you so much for such an amazing introduction. The admiration is mutual, and I love your perspective. I love your work, and and I love how you look at things. And oh, thank so you so much. Yeah, so it's it's totally mutual. Thank you. For the benefit of the audience, Abdi, you caught the phrase from Abeba's article: "A person is a person through other persons." We'll provide a link to the article in the show mm-hmm. notes. For now, Abeba, can you summarize it for us? That article was written in 2017, and yeah, it took a while to write because I'm I'm used to writing academic stuff and and writing, communicating such complex ideas to people outside a narrow field proved uh, somewhat difficult. The editor helped a lot, and uh, it was published three years ago. But it remains still one of my favorite uh, works and usually I'm, I'm a kind of I'm a, I'm a type of person that would kind of look at stuff I did a few years ago and feel a little maybe embarrassed or like oh I have moved on beyond that but I like that article. A quick summary of that article is a kind of comparison of how what is known as a Cartesian uh, individualist way of thinking is so dominating, whether it's fear, what cognition is, you know, what personhood is, uh, but also even outside academia, you know, in in various spheres, you will see the downstream uh, effects of Cartesian thinking where 
people really think in in individualistic terms. So that article was kind of a pushback against that individualistic notion. And the core argument is that there is actually no, even the very idea of thinking is a very communal, very interactional and a very relational uh, endeavor. Even when you say, for example, when you send a tweet, you are, uh, you know, either responding to someone uh, or you are sending it in, in anticipation to a response. So there is always an element of others' involvement. So any area of life, any sphere of life you look at, we become uh, who we are through our constant and dynamic exchange, uh, dialogues and interactions with those around us, but also even the physical infrastructure, the physical environment, it in a sense plays a, a significant role in kind of uh, shaping the kind of person uh, we, we, we continue to be uh, or that we are. I don't know if that uh, describes, you know, the idea perfectly because we have become, has that connotation of that we are finished. So become is uh, much more suiting, I think, because we are constantly becoming, we're constantly changing, constantly adapting as we uh, move through, you know, interactions and, and journeys with others. And I give uh, various examples. And actually, one of the uh, really striking um, examples is people read and especially psychologists are very sensitive and say, that's a kind of uh, a strawman argument, a caricature argument. Nobody commits to the Cartesian notion of the isolated individual self anymore. But you go and look at how people actually study various aspects of cognition, and you will find that this individualistic notion has actually seeped into people's research. So one example is uh, memory research, where the canonical uh, tradition of studying memory is to pick someone out of their environment, place them in a lab, and, and you give them various words or numbers to memorize, to, to regurgitate, and then uh, you ask them to recall it. But also, another really striking point is that I bring in the example of solitary confinement. And, and going back in history, at the conception of solitary confinement, the idea behind it was that it's all, you know, uh, reflections, logical coherence, and the ability to think, all, all the higher kind of elements that matter. So then the, the thinking was that uh, if someone has committed crime, then the solution is to put them in isolation away from, you know, social distractions, away from the distractions of what's, what's happening around them. And then in isolation, they will reflect and they will repent on their crimes. And then they will come out cleansed as if, as if, as if they are a new person. They will emerge anew. So that kind of thinking within the, the prison system especially in solitary confinement, as its conception really shows you how Cartesian thinking was uh, really fundamental. But of course, the research has shown that when you put people in solitary confinement, instead of reflecting and thinking and, and going through logical steps and finding their true self, what happens is the longer people remain in solitary confinement, in isolation from others, 
the more they suffer from physical, psychological, and mental problems, suffer from delusions, they lose a sense of space and time. In, in some extreme cases, they even lose the ability to differentiate where their body ends and other people begin. So uh, eventually, they gradually lose their sense of self instead of finding themselves. It's a really unfortunate, but a really stark a way of illustrating how people in isolation are no longer people. Oh, wow. Isolating someone from all other people. If we uh, hypothesized, like with a real grasp of people finding themselves through other people, people being themselves through other people, we could not perform that experiment because it would be unethical to isolate a person in order to see what happens when they're separated from other people. But it happens that our individualistic culture has performed that experiment for us. And indeed, they lose their sense of self. Yes. You know, any uh, scientific experiment like that where you isolate people is absolutely unethical. But the, the prison complex does it for you, unfortunately, which is uh, really sad and, and, and horrifying. And authorities still treat solitary confinement as kind of punishments, not as something that have a really deep mental and psychological impact, not as a way for uh, that leads people into, into losing their sense of self, which is, which is unfortunate because that's how Solitary confinement should be viewed as, you know, a, a really horrible way for someone to die while they're still alive. My philosophy training went as far as reading Camus and getting to the point where Camus told me that the only thing I had to decide first off was whether or not I wanted to commit suicide. So I just closed the book and started playing with computers instead. So when you when you when you talk when you talk about Descartes and and the uh, individualistic perspective, right? I feel like I'm gathering it via just the context clues of what you're saying that maybe this Cartesian perspective is one of like uh, like a strong individualistic existence, right? That we we exist kind of I mean not not maybe isolated, but like you are you and I am me and we're separate. Is that is that right? Am I getting that right, or is there is there more to it? Yeah, I think so. I, I've only been to the United States once, but I, my impression of, you know, that the culture within the U.S. is, generally speaking, very much informed by that individualistic notion of, like, if you work hard enough, you can achieve, you can get whatever, wherever you want, or uh, if you are, say, for example, obese mm -hmm. or overweight, then it's your fault. It's, mm -hmm. there is mm -hmm. that that element of, you know, thinking about the individual as if they exist on uh, no man's land, or I should say on, on an island. It's yeah, as if we are kind of isolated items that, yeah, that's not impacted with what's going on around us or with our historical inheritances or with what is socially perceived as the norm. So various uh, social and structural power, in, power inequalities. So that individualistic notion kind of tends to put all these factors aside as if they don't have that much impact. Even if their impact is acknowledged, it's seen as you know a, a secondary factor rather than as central 
factor that really plays a huge role in determining what you achieve, who you become, uh, or what kind of, you know, things you end up doing. But I think these things, which are usually seen as contaminant factors within the Cartesian framework, for me, I think are really central. Uh, not just for me, within, you know, the uh, embodied cognitive science perspective, even uh, a lot of Black feminist scholars highlighted uh, factors really are, are important. And if you are proposing any understanding of cognition or of the person, scrutinizing and, and uh, examining those factors often seen as contaminant from the Cartesian perspective is really central. Correct if I'm wrong, but am I remembering right that you had some, uh, some kind of longer form thoughts around pioneering and like Western expansion and stuff like that as being like this kind of myth that was created around this kind of I'm, I'm I'm feeling these like like weird connections right between like this individualistic ideas or viewpoints and like the way that some parts of the tech community still feel about meritocracy and pulling you up by your own bootstraps right am I am I anywhere close am I so uh, Mondo uh, you might be referring to I, I gave a talk maybe you were there for that that was exactly it was about the um, it was about the pioneer mythology um, mm -hmm. in America. And particularly the the pioneer mythology that was that was propagated by people like Laura Ingalls Wilder, um, which turns out to be almost entirely based on either fiction or misinterpretations of uh, just how interdependent people really were in those days, and how many of the failings, how many of the disasters came from people believing that they that they were independent. And that actually that talk was influenced by some things that Abeba wrote. There were some pieces in there about I think interdependence. That was influenced by that, so it's it's. Uh, I, I guess that explains why you're making that connection. There it is. Yep. Abeba, uh, the stuff that we've been talking about so far has been very. Um, you know, it's been about cognitive science and it's been about philosophy. I, I've seen that you you have increasingly been commenting per, uh, specifically on technology and artificial intelligence and stuff like that. Can you like trace for us the connection between your philosophical and cognitive studies and your tech criticism? So basically, you are asking me to describe my thesis in. But just, and, just real quick, just real quick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just real quick. Yeah, and this and. This will be uh, easier than having to defend it. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, that's that's basically what I'm trying to do through my thesis, and it's it's a long and challenging road. The short summary of it all is that, again, when, when you summarize, you tend to caricature things. So what I'm going to give you is almost a, a straw man. But what I'm trying to do through my thesis is that on the one hand, you have you know the embodied cognitive science perception or understanding of cognition, people, culture, societies, uh, which is what we've been talking about, which is fundamentally interconnected, fundamentally codependent, dynamic, always changing, always becoming, never finished, not something you can kind of pin down and, and finalize and predict in a sense. So uh, inherently, uh, the conclusion uh, of, you know, cognition, personhood in society coming from uh, embodied cocci general systems thinking is that as complex adaptive systems, we are inherently non-determinable 
and ambiguous and always changing. You have that view on the one hand that I'm trying to develop in, in the context of AI and machine learning in general. But on the other hand, you come and look at so much of the development, especially over the last few years in AI uh, and various uh, machine learning models where the fundamental assumption is that you can create a model, feed it you know, huge amounts of data, and you can abstract patterns and, and similarities and commonalities and you somehow then understand or know human behavior or how society works, and then you use that data or that output to create predictive models where you are constantly predicting really you know, high-stake, uh, impactful areas where you have machines determining who is a good hire, who should go to prison, or who, who is, you know, a good babysitter, uh, who is deservant of child welfare or general welfare. You have a, the grading algorithm that was introduced in the UK and in Ireland uh, over the summer. So you have algorithms for all kinds of social phenomena that operate with the assumption that uh, you can predict with some precision. Between those two notions, I'm trying to argue at least that any predictions, you know, whether long-term or short-term of how people will behave or how people will act or, you know, who holds a, a good characteristics or how society moves is fundamentally flawed. Not only scientifically, because theories and, and empirical findings from uh, systems thinking tell us that these complex adaptive phenomena systems are inherently unpredictable. So it's difficult, it's impossible to predict scientifically, but also on top of that, it's really ethically a huge red flag to create systems and to deploy them into the world that predict these really crucial roles and these, these uh, really um, crucial uh, elements uh, within society. So I'm trying to approach it both as scientifically uh, uh, problematic, uh, fallacious, uh, but also ethically flawed and harmful, especially to minoritized communities, to individuals and communities that are at the margins of society. Because when you create you know, machine learning models uh, using historical data, the huge amounts of data that you use to create machine learning system is usually treated as, as the ground truth, whereas in reality, it really reflects historical injustices and historical inequalities. And instead of questioning those historical inequalities, what machine learning systems do is to assume this is this is the ground truth, this is how society is, this is how things are, this is reality. And, and based on this, we can predict. Also, prediction itself is performative. By predicting something, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. You are creating, you are helping create a certain type of reality. Uh, and in, in that process, you are also depriving people uh, the potential to be the exception from the rule. The the you are depriving people uh, the potential to be different from the stereotype. So those are the kind of questions I explore in, in my thesis. 
Uh, and th those are the kind of connections I try to make between uh, embodied COGSI uh, theories and principles, systems thinking, uh, and current machine learning systems, and ethics and, and harmful uh, outcomes due to uh, machine prediction. So when we make machine learning models based on a bunch of data and then act on what they can say about what happened in the past, which is assumed to be what we also want to do in the future, then we're recreating the past, we're continuing the past, and we're depriving our whole culture of that continual becoming. Not only that, but we're perpetuating a particular perspective on the past. Yes. Yeah. yeah it's called reinforced learning for a reason, right? Like. It's a lot doing. more about reinforcement than learning. <laughs> yeah. Yes, except for some reason, reinforcement learning is presented as objective, a political, uh, neutral. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yes. I mean, yeah. There's the subtlety to my like, you know, raspberry thumbs down, right? Because it it all depends on the data, right? If there was some sort of like magical wand that one could wave, right, that would create this data set that was free of historical injustices and biases and things like that, right? Then sure, you know, like- I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, that, yeah, that's very pro problematic. For that's starters- like Biases are historical. No, no, we have them right now. They're present. Oh, yeah, for <laughs> They're sure. in the future. That <laughs> there is yeah. no objective measure. Therefore, there is no data set mm -hmm. that can be correct yeah. in a system that's constantly changing. Exactly yeah, exactly, right. exactly. Exactly. I mean, it, yeah, it, it kind of assumes there is, uh, you know, an observer-free uh, reality that mm -hmm. can be represented by data, but that is not the case. Reality is always observer-dependent, so any uh, data set will reflect uh, the point of view of that observer, or you know, how yeah, it's, how data it's gathered. Yeah. It seems like it, it's it's assuming that there's some kind of a lot of this stuff assumes there's a, some kind of platonic ideal of a person. Like if you're trying to measure a person, if you're trying to gauge their aptitude for a job or for for getting a, a home loan or or anything else, you're assuming there's some platonic ideal of them at the core of the universe that they are somewhat expressing through their various through you know their, their resume, their resume and other and other things. And if you can just like find that platonic ideal of the person then then you'll know you know what they they can do but the truth but but that's not it is it that ideal that kernel doesn't exist we exist in relation to other people and like i see this with interviewing and gauging people for jobs a lot where where a lot of these systems seem geared to like trying to measure certain aspects of a person and you're not going to know how they're going to perform at that job because you haven't seen them in constellation with the other people who are going to be on their team. You know, the way that they behave. And the way the job is going to change with them in it. And the, exactly. And that as system as, is as if the person matters half as much as everything around them in that job <laughs> anyway. Right. There's, man, there's so much going on here. This is great. <laughs> so we've got uh, Simon's aunt, which is the environment we have, what did influences behavior. Assignments, aunt. 
Simon. So Herbert Simon uh, had a parable in uh, in oh, the book okay. that won him his Nobel Prize, which is of an ant. And the idea of the uh, Simon's ant is if you look at an ant's uh, so if you watch an ant for a while in the jungle or wherever ants are, and you look at what it does for a day, you know, it walks over here, it walks over this log, it walks around this rock, it goes over there to talk to its confederate, it comes back, it looks for food, it comes back. If you, like, place a little tiny transponder on the ant, and then you chart it out in three dimensions, the path the ant took through the jungle, and then you got rid of the jungle, that path <laughs> would look very and so Simon's question was, where does the complexity come from? And the answer, had, well, Simon got the answer sort of wrong. Simon's answer was the complexity comes from the jungle. So you can just ignore it as being external to the behavior of the ant. And John Hoglan said, no, look, if you want to understand what the ant did, you can't throw away the jungle. Because if the ant was in a different place, it would have behaved differently. And so the, the metaphor yeah. here is that the environment you're in has a huge impact on behavior. But it's the relation, right? You can't throw away yeah. the ants either. So yeah. Simon said, we treat the jungle as an, ex as an externality. And Hoglund said, no, we have to think about the ant as being embedded in its environment to understand its cognition. That is a brilliant point. That kind of connected to things that I've been thinking about, about abstraction and how, in a sense, when we are creating, you know, an, an archetype, as you were uh, saying of the uh, of a person from their patterns, we are kind of trying to abstract away what we think are important, uh, which kind of connects to what you are talking about, Rain. How we can't treat you know the environment as externalities, but rather, in a sense, kind of putting away the jungle is as you know an important factor is kind of putting away context and 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 putting away. Uh, re really necessary contingencies and treating that root as, you know, something that can be abstracted away. And this is one of the problems. I mean, abstraction, I know you've discussed about this in, in your uh, previous podcast with uh, one of your guests, Professor Eugenia Cheng, I think. Uh, abstraction has its own place. And one of the beautiful descriptions that I have heard is from your podcast with uh, that mathematician, Professor Eugenia Cheng, uh, where abstraction is really important. It helps you see the bigger picture. So I'm not dissing or kind of advocating for throwing away all systems of abstraction. But when it comes to understanding the person or the ants movement, we, what really matters is not the patterns that we can abstract away, but the particularities, the, the idiosyncratic movements, the, the concrete interactions. That's really what makes us, you know, who we are individually, uniquely, uh, rather than all the commonalities uh, that we have with other people that can be kind of abstracted away and, and formalized and, and um, kind of datafied. Uh, in a way that can be uh, used to uh, build machine learning models. Let me let me add in one other thing, uh, which which is that I think we've gotten the priority wrong on how we understand complex systems, like folk models, how people think about it. Because what people think is when you have a system, then what you do is you look for the components and you look for their interactions, and that's what you do to analyze a system. But in fact. Being able to find components and interactions 
is what allows us to see a system in the first place. So seeing components and interactions comes first, not second. Okay. I liked uh, Abeba's point from uh, Dr. Cheng's episode was about the right abstractions can help us see the bigger picture. But from the, the Simon's Ant example, other abstraction mechanisms can take away the bigger picture. Yeah, or maybe are in the in the case of the latter, maybe they are the wrong framework. Right. Because in a sense, when you are abstracting away my activities or my behavior, you are kind of taking out or or separating the things or some kind of facts about me that stand in and of themselves and that can describe me independent of my interaction with others, independent of my dynamic communication with my environment. So in, in, you are kind of putting away all the mundane or idiosyncratic movements or behaviors that cannot be put into patterns or that cannot be seen independent of other factors. In, a, in an ideal world, in a reality where things are not in, interdependent and interconnected, in, in the mathematical world, as uh, Cheng described it, that is a really nice way of seeing things. But in the reality that we exist, where things are always becoming, where things are always contingent on other factors, where people exist always uh, in codependent and, and uh, in, in co-interaction with others, then trying to kind of uh, put away that dependency, that co-being, and trying to this is the same as kind of, you know, psychologists studying memory by taking away the person and putting them in a lab and trying to understand their mental capacity for memory. I mean, Which it's is only memorization of arbitrary. Yeah, it's, it, it kind of gives you a neat, it sounds neat. It gives you um, an ideal way of understanding people and you, it gives you an illusion into thinking that you can kind of separate things and, and put people in a lab and really just focus on their mental capacities and memory. But And we think that's what science is. We think science is about isolating all the other factors so that we can study just one, as if that weirdly separated concept of memorization has any relation to how we interact with the world. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yes, so many people have said that really beautifully. And one of my favorite books on that is Order Out of Chaos by Ilya Prigogini and uh, Stangers, I think, where they remark on how science from its foundation is really built on separation, dichotomizing, cutting things. Even the, the etymology of science itself comes from the root word of, of to cut away, to separate things. So that is the, the, the canonical perception and, and thinking about science, which again really shows you how really pervasive Cartesian thinking of uh, separating and individualizing and cutting things away is. But in reality, you know, you can never separate, you can never cut between things. And I feel like it leads to reductionist thinking yeah. when, when you regard regard cutting away as the ultimate form of knowing leads to <laughs> it doesn't have far to go you know i was thinking like and i think i think in a in an inter information economy it feels like we 
tend to identify no having all the data, quote, all the data as knowing everything we need to know about something. Mm-hmm. And we constantly mistake, you know, we think we have all the data on things because we have so much information. Um, you know, what I was thinking about is like if, if alien, if I were the ant and aliens were watching me and they were collecting data on all of my movements. Well, you know, sometimes I go into the kitchen to get a bagel and sometimes I go into the kitchen to have a conversation. But from the point of view of that data set, it's just going into the kitchen. Or on a resume, on a resume, it's, oh, uh, you might notice that someone has 10 years of Ruby and uh, Heroku, but no AWS. Does that say that they're, (laughs) that they don't like the cloud or, well, okay, Heroku is also the cloud. I'm making this up. That, That they don't like AWS, that they don't like Java, or does it say that in that environment, Ruby skills were needed and developed? In that environment, in that particular thing they were working on, Heroku was appropriate or just historically present. We make it about the person, and it's almost never. The ant did not climb three or 30 feet today because it is a climbing ant of climbiness. There was food up a tree today. I Yeah. There's a really great example of this phenomenon in cognitive science, which is the study specifically of confirmation bias. The thing about confirmation bias is once you learn about it, you see it everywhere. But the, the, <laughs> the other thing about confirmation bias is that it was originally studied out of context. So they gave these people in a laboratory setting a task to do, and that task didn't have any, they weren't familiar with the task. They didn't have any context to uh, make sense of the task. In that, that scenario, confirmation they saw confirmation bias. But when another study gave them effectively the same task, but using a context they f- were familiar with, so the context was around, like, checking ID to figure out whether someone's allowed to drink in a bar. It was a context that people were familiar with. When they gave the same task, you know, like the same logical problem, in a context that they were familiar with, the confirmation bias effect disappeared. Oh, because... <laughs> The thing to do with confirmation bias is not to eliminate the human. It's to recognize it and compensate for it. And in a real situation, we can often do that appropriately, consciously. So Gary Klein uh, made a really good point, which is that you don't get grant money to study how biases work well. (laughs) (laughs) That is very meta. (laughs) Beba, one of the things that I think I see in some of the some of what you talk about online is it seems like you're saying sometimes that a side effect of all of this study into machine learning models is that it, like if we say if we if we think we can model everything we need to know in a machine learning model, then we flip that around as a mirror and say then that is what humans are made of. Like this mo- machine learning model is also what a human is. Is that accurate? Like that's is that something you been saying? Yeah, I mean, it's it's obvious that many machine learning researchers don't really engage in such really high level critical or almost metaphysical question of, you know, is that what humans are? Or is that what society is? Or is that reality is, you know, you don't find any questions like this in machine learning research. But when you look at what machine learning models are trying to do, you you see the the working assumption of what people are, what cognition is, what society is, and you can extrapolate the assumption is that 
has existed, what has happened historically, if you can gather enough data on it, captures reality. And then from that, as your kind of baseline, as, as your, I keep saying ground truth, that's the term machine learning people use, which is often used without any uh, critical scrutiny, because it also has its own really huge baggages of assumptions, starting from the assumption that there exists an objective, you know, observer-free world out there. So coming back to my point, if you can gather enough data to kind of tell you how things are and how things have existed and, and how people behave, then they go on to assume that. Then you can create machine learning models to replicate and to kind of create a future that resembles the past or what exists or what the data shows you exist. Just thinking about how many levels of wrong are involved in getting these machine learning results. So first of all, if you take like means testing, first of all, means testing is bullshit. Uh, It's not a legitimate way. Means testing. So figuring out who gets welfare based on some criteria about like, are they the right sort of person versus do they need it? So first of all, means testing is bullshit. Second of all, using machine learning to do means testing is bullshit. Third of all, using machine learning to get some single number that tells you how worthy a person is to receive aid is bullshit. Fourth of all, the results that you get from machine learning are garbage, but they're given this sort of imprimatur of authenticity because people don't understand that machine learning is garbage. (laughs) Fifth of all, it's okay to do the wrong thing wrong because then you generally don't succeed in doing the wrong thing. It's much worse to do the wrong thing right because then you get wronger. But in this case, you're doing the wrong thing wrong in a way that makes you wronger because people are interpreting these garbage results as being meaningful. And then they're acting on them. Seventh of all, I'm just going to carry on uh, from what you started. Seventh of all, people have uh, a huge amount of faith in and really blind faith in machine learning models. Uh, People assume because there is mathematics involved, they are apolitical, uh, they are free from negative outcomes. And because it's not people, but rather machines that are doing the sorting, the categorizing, or the prediction, then, you know, it must be good. So yeah, how can really... adding be wrong? <laughs> oh, let me really tell you, lose... I was helping my kids do math this week. <laughs> adding can be super wrong. Yeah, so people really lose their critical abilities when it comes to examining machine learning models. So that's the seventh. And eighth of all, even a meta point, the, the fact that much of learning models start from a really problematic assumption in the case of, say, for example, the, the judging who, who deserves welfare, you know, they come into this with, you know, the idea of playing gacha, you know, how are we going to catch people that are taking welfare systems undeservedly? not from a really positive or really concerned point of people often and that fall under the the, the welfare system are uh, you know uh, underserved from uh, economically deprived backgrounds so the assumption is not how do we improve that how do we change society or how do we help those uh, already uh, vulnerable people uh, it's it's really built on how do we catch people that are taking welfare that shouldn't be. So I mean, it's 
This is the welfare queen, the racist welfare queen trope laundered through machine learning. Yeah. Yep. There's something that I've been bouncing around in my head a lot, uh, especially with the uh, uh, the recent election and election cycle here in the U.S. It, it, it seems as though there's this like, I don't know, stratification of empathy in society, right? Where you have these different levels of empathy for different groups of people based on how you relate to them or how you know them or whatever, right? And when you don't approach these kinds of problems with this kind of generalized empathy towards the people whose behavior you're trying to model or affect or whatever, right? Like you were saying, you don't, without that empathy, you don't focus on the potential positive outcomes that you're trying to actually get, right? You're focused on the negative outcomes that you perceive as reality and trying to reduce those rain, like you're saying, right? This like welfare mm-hmm. queen trope, mm-hmm. right? That, mm-hmm. you know, well, the government is willing to spend, you know, who knows how many millions upon millions of dollars to build these machine learning projects, right? To mm-hmm. reduce potential abuse of the system, right? Rather yeah. than rather than spending that money trying to make the overall outcome better, right? And it, I don't yeah. know. It, to yeah. me, it seems no, that's, to I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Let me quote Russ Acoff here: "You can't get something you want by getting rid of something you don't want." Yeah. Huh? <laughs> so the example he uses is: What's the likelihood that you turn on the TV and you get a channel, you get a show you want? He said he calculated it, and it's a tenth of a percent. So you switch to another channel. What's the likelihood that you get a show you want? It's not better now. So if you, you just eliminate all the channels, chance, well, then at least you'll know. percent chance of getting a show that's worse than the one you're currently on. Yeah. Also, Mando, don't also forget the underlying capitalist, uh, you know, drive between... Yeah. You know, in 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 the in the creation and deployment of these machine learning models, if you look at the objectives, they are not really uh, in in the business of uh, protecting vulnerable people's welfares or needs or listening to marginalized people's interests, but rather, most of the time, the objective is to maximize profits, yeah, uh, sure. create efficient systems, efficient in a sense. That reduces time uh, and, and effort for people, uh, you know, who are, you know, already in positions of power. So they are barely developed with the interests and and the need of uh, vulnerable and marginalized communities. So capitalist motives drive the the development and deployment of these systems. Yeah, and it seems to me anytime you're trying to score someone, it becomes, even if you claim it's not, it's, it's going to become a game of worth or, or it's going to become an indicator of worth. Ultimately, mm-hmm. you are rating people's worth as a number. And then the system treats them like that and then people treat each other like that and it becomes accurate as a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, accurate in a sense that it, it portrays a socially held stereotype because... Right. The- the more you're marginalized, the the less you're able to do in the world. Yeah, and 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 I have various ongoing projects, and a couple of them involve reading huge amounts of work in HCI, machine learning, and AI. And uh, in almost every paper, you will have the word accuracy mentioned multiple times. 
And after reading so many papers, I have come to realize that when people say their models predict certain phenomena or certain behaviors or certain actions with accuracy, the accuracy usually refers to socially held stereotypes. So if their model can match the perception of an individual, or then that is often seen as accuracy. But that's my understanding based on my reading. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a mm-hmm. lot of... Um, so accuracy means learning. confirms my bias? That's my claim, and I'm sure a lot of people will not be happy with my interpretation, but uh, that's unfortunately what I have come to, to realize. <laughs> that's what the listeners are here for, cognitive bias hot takes. <laughs> There's a problem yeah. here, which is if you had a better way to get the answer, you would just do that instead. So if you had some way to determine the accuracy of your answer that was more reliable than the thing you're doing, you would just go do that thing. But the thing we're comparing it against is human judgment, because that's all we've had in the past to decide someone's worth, for instance. But now we get, we, we attempt to reproduce the human judgment with math, and we get a more precise number with more decimal points. Progress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, accuracy, just like, you know, the notion of unbiased data or the notion of ground truth, again, is built on this observer-free kind of really Cartesian metaphysical assumption of uh, you can remove all these uh, contaminants, social, uh, historical, contextual factors and get at that, uh, you know, freestanding reality. So even the very question of finding the true accuracy or the true ground truth or the unbiased data set is just a futile endeavor because there is no such thing, I think. Abiba, has, has any of, have you focused on any other areas of technology that are kind of causing these, these same kind of like uh, reinforcement of dynamics outside of machine learning, like other, other things in the technological sphere, or has your work been focus primarily on uh, machine learning and AI and the frameworks around those and how they're impacting. Can you give me an example, maybe? Uh, the I, other things? Yeah, I, uh, that I was kind of hoping that you would have some. Like, this is, this is, I was, I was yeah. wondering what other, what other kinds of things in technology reinforce these kind of uh, dynamics outside AI and, you know, machine learning models and stuff like that, right? I mean, ah. I know we, we talked a little bit about it earlier about like the interview process, but these are just kind of like our own personal mental models and how that happens. You know, I was wondering if there, if anyone had any other ideas or example, or if you had worked. There's always the the thing about names and like Western assumptions that people have Western style names, mm-hmm. the gender binary enforced mm-hmm. in forms. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's a good point. Those are both, both good points. Good examples. Thank you. Yeah, at the moment, so I'm on the final year of my PhD. <laughs> That's, saying it out loud is really scary. That means you really have to sit and write the thesis. Uh, and I am nowhere near that. The good and the bad thing is I have been working on so many, you know, various projects, interrelated projects. So I have been um, producing you know, academic outputs, uh, you know, published work, which is the currency of academia. 
So from that front, uh, it's positive. But the negative thing is that a PhD thesis is supposed to have a single story, a kind of a, a single direction. You are supposed to narrate something. So having myself distributed up between all these various projects is making it really difficult to kind of narrowing down which directions I'm going to take, uh, which story I'm going to narrate, even though I have this uh, loose idea of connecting embodied foresight thinking, uh, what machine learning systems do, and, uh, you know, the the Black feminist scholars have been producing amazing works in exposing, you know, how marginalized folks are always, you know, the most disadvantaged uh, and how, uh, you know, historical discriminations work and how Black women's experiences have been kind of sidelined. But when it comes to having uh, knowledge of, say, for example, oppression, uh, the experience is really crucial. Uh, Patricia Hill Collins, uh, one of my my favorite Black feminist scholars, uh, outlines this beautifully. She even thinks of knowledge in in two terms. You know, she has book learning on the one hand. You know, learning that comes from academic uh, engagement, uh, but you have wisdom which you acquire through your lived experience. So for her, uh, lived experience is really crucial. And when it comes to judging oppression or discrimination or bias or anything like that, people who experience those things have the epistemic privilege to really know and understand those things. So I've also been trying to approach what ethics is from that angle. So at the moment, I have three strands, the embodied side, the machine learning element, and the kind of practical concrete ethics that comes from Black feminist scholars. So coming back to your question, instead of kind of studying other things or looking at other things, I'm really trying to narrow down at this stage of the, the final year of the, the PhD. Um, yeah. Oh, stop, stop jinxing it. I got to find some wood to knock on for you. Wow. It's, it's almost like your varied interrelations with your existing complex environments are in conflict with the academic desire to narrow things into a single component part. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> and coming coming back around to that, Abiba, I didn't ask you the question that we ask all of our guests. Now, usually <laughs> that question is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? But in light of this discussion, I want to ask you, what is one of your important idiosyncrasies and what contaminating factors from the rest of the world helped you uh, develop? Develop it. <laughs> I'm glad you asked me the second question instead of the first because I'm Ethiopian. I'm I'm from Ethiopia and and I live in Ireland. So in Ethiopian culture, you don't really people don't really talk about you know their superpowers or you know things that are they're good at or it's like bragging is really looked down on. Other people talk about you know your superpowers or what you are good at. And Ireland and Ethiopia are, you know, very far apart in terms of cultural similarities. But one thing both cultures, you know, my home country and the country I live, uh, one thing they have in common is this uh, thinking of, you know, talking up yourself as something undesirable. So I would have struggled finding or expressing my, my, my superpower thing. So your second 
question which is what is my idiosyncrasy and what are my contingent factors again like superpowers maybe my idiosyncrasies are something that are visible to other people to those around me and not me so yeah i don't know <laughs> maybe in in you know light of ethiopian culture maybe we should say what we think your superpowers are yeah yeah or things that are different about you that are important to the world. Yeah. One of yeah. those things is clearly seeing and appreciating the exceptions, the potential to be different in every person, in every situation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of along those same lines, right? The ability to tease apart these existing cultural ideas around identity and, and humanity and, and to be willing to say that, you know, hundreds of years of thinking, now nah, that's just, that's just all wrong. Y'all, y'all's all wrong. Yeah. Before I answer, I just want to point out that Mondo, you were talking about teasing apart and I, I think it's fascinating how embedded Cartesian oh, analytical yeah. thinking is into like everyone's worldview. I don't think you're wrong. I just thought that was interesting. Um, yeah. I would say that in addition to that sort of analytical thing that you're doing, I, I also think you're doing a really important synthesis, which is you're taking concepts from different but related fields and seeing their connectedness and interrelations and then bring them together into a whole that I think is more than the sum of their parts. Yeah, seeing the consequences that do not belong to any one cause, such as oppression, marginalization, machine learning, our warped individualism, uh, but seeing the things that are consequences of all these things wrapped in with each other. Yeah, Abeba, I, I feel like you just said a person has idiosyncrasies through other persons. <laughs> <laughs> I like well, that. If there was just one person, <laughs> then nothing <laughs> about that person would be unusual. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It'd be, it'd be synchronic. No, that's nothing. See, everything is relational. Yeah. Everything is relational. Yeah, it is. I feel like this is a good moment to move into reflections, although we kind of did that. Yeah, we kind of just did. Does anyone have any <laughs> additional reflections? I'm going back with what Rain just said. The, the, the thing that I'm carrying away from this the most is how that Cartesian thinking and worldview is so embedded in my own, like almost like lizard brain, right? That it frames how I look at so much stuff without me even thinking about it, right? Um, mm -hmm. And also, mm -hmm. also that I have a, a lot of reading to do. I think the thing that that's really stuck with me is the phrase "contaminating factors." Mm. <laughs> um, like interpreting context as contaminant we do that and interpreting yeah. relations as contaminants i think that's that mm. is a thing that we do and that's a useful way of of really bringing it into focus that we do that i also as a reflection i also want to talk just a little tiny bit about something that isn't a reflection from this particular episode but is just kind of getting back to why i was so excited to talk to you in the first place and say that that perspective of relationality um, and of our identity emerging through relationality, not from a single source. You know, for me personally, I feel like it really helped me get over the Western notion of 
dive into yourself to find yourself, you know, go inside mm. yourself to find yourself and really finally gave me peace to discover myself in relation to other people and not feel like I was shortchanging my own identity by doing that. And that has been just transformative. So, mm. okay. That actually changes mine slightly. And it is true that the sort of dominant paradigm in Western thought has been this Cartesian mode, but actually Eastern thought has gotten this right for centuries. Um, mm. So, for example, uh, in Jainism, there are three sort of central principles. The Jains are the people who don't kill bugs because they're nonviolent. Um, the first principle is uh, the theory of – I'm going to reduce these by summarizing them, but I'll try to get them across. The first is the elephant and the blindfolded men parable. We each see a particular perspective on the thing, on the object, and that no, no particular standpoint is privileged. The second is the theory of condition predication or contingency. So everything is maybe or in some ways or from a perspective. It depends. There's, right. There is no objective perception of mm. the universe. And then the third is a theory of partial standpoints. And so that is that any particular object has infinite facets, dimensions that mm. we could perceive, that we could talk about. But at any time, we're only perceiving some of them. Mm. So Jainism has gotten this right. Well, I think it's right. That's a value judgment. But Jainism has had this perspective for centuries. Mm. I, I want to give the Cartesian program credit for what it's good for by using science as a way to break things down into parts and studying those very deeply and individually in isolation with the scientific method. We have learned a lot. It's been incredibly useful to the progression of human knowledge. And that's one reason it's so embedded and stuck. Uh, it's not that science is breaking apart. It's not that controlled experiments are bad or useless or wrong. They're just inappropriate in most real situations now. I, I think of them as, as corner cases. Sometimes X equals zero and it, the problem is a lot easier. It's like that. If you can have a linear effect, great. Do that easy math. But don't think it applies to anything human. Yes. I don't hold on uh, when it comes to criticizing the Cartesian worldview. So I also want to join you, Jessica, and, and say it's not all bad. I mean, the Cartesian coordinates, for example, you know, brilliant. Uh, and we have also learned so much about the world by breaking things down into, you know, fine-grained elements and studying them, it's all great. But again, I, I go back to, you know, that book, Order Out of Chaos, they brilliantly point out how it's great to break things down into their very tiny elements and study them. The problem is we forget to put back together we forget to zoom out and try to see the bigger picture and i mean breaking things down uh, and, and all this cartesian thinking gives us you know a kind of certainty which we all love and it, it gives us a sense of control and and it's great in a sense but also it prevents us from acknowledging this continually moving reality where we cannot be certain about everything. And we also get into, into the habit of 
viewing uncertainty as a weakness, as a problem, rather than as an equation, as a part of reality that we should embrace and that we should uh, we should live with. I mean, even reductionism isn't bad per se. It is good that I can sit in a chair without having to perceive it as a collection of quantum fields or whatever it, <laughs> you know, the fundamental of the universe is. Like, reductionism is really good and it lets us understand the universe at all. But it's insufficient. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Embrace uncertainty as part of reality. Yeah, and, and you know, work with it. We can work with that. Yes. Thank you, Abeba. I think this is my new favorite episode. Yay! Yeah, for sure. I have enjoyed this so much. I could talk to you all all day. It's- okay. <laughs> I'd like to do another one, please. Okay. Uh, yeah, this has been so enjoyable. Thank you very much. It's been fantastic. If you like Greater Than Code, you should join us on Slack, for instance. Actually, just support us on Patreon, and then you'll get an invite to Slack. And then if you want to join us on Slack, you can also do that. But first, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash greater than code. 